In Amazon Prime's *The Tomorrow War*, conscripted soldiers and scientific researchers try to prevent a future alien threat from destroying humanity, excluding the only secure hope of a true future—that which you find through faith in God. Are you just watching episode 119, *The Tomorrow War*? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Mark, and we are going back into the streaming verse and picking up a movie that came out in July. It actually came out about the same time as the Black Widow did. A little bit before, actually. Yeah, but it's still available, still out there. So if people haven't seen it, they can still get to it through Amazon Prime. It still seems to be doing well in viewing too, as far as you know the ratings and and eyeballs on it. Yes, I think it's a fairly high budget movie for a streaming service,、mm. and I think Amazon、mm-hmm. Prime did well to promote it the way they did because it was rather promoted, very similar to what a movie coming out in the theater would be promoted. So it is getting a lot of. Hits that from that reason, and most people have Amazon Prime. It's pretty amazing how they're taking over the world. I didn't say that. <laughs> Don't worry, Amazon will scrub it from the audio once we get it up into the internet, anyway. <laughs> so, as we mentioned when we were doing our review of the Black Widow, the score for Tomorrow War is also by Lauren Balf, who did the score for Black Widow, and it is. In places, very creepy <laughs> score and very upbeat, matching the tone of the movie for the most part. And we will play a little bit of it here. Fun soundtrack. I think it speaks to the quality of the movie to have that quality of a soundtrack to it as well.、Mm-hmm. Well, we have a lot to discuss about this movie, so we'll talk a little bit. Maybe you know, avoid spoilers. Maybe just through our first impressions, and then we will get deep into what's going on in the movie. I just thought when I first watched it, I actually saw the preview the night before they released it to the streaming service. And watching it, kind of like I would watch a movie premiere, I was impressed with how big budget it was, how the the high action movie, the great acting. I mean, I like Chris Pratt, so I mean, what else can you say? Yeah. <laughs> I think, however, that after I watched it, it kind of. Like nagged at me. <laughs> I told a couple friends how good a movie it was and that we could watch it. And then I watched it again with another friend. And after the second viewing, it was nagging at me more. And then when we decided we were going to do this episode on it, then I did a true critical thinking pass on it. And that was when I really felt like Greta Thunberg was frowning at me through half the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and the agenda、how、was there. How dare you? How, yes. How dare you? I really feel like the climate change agenda in this movie was at subtler than、uh, some movies that it's 
You know, it's yeah. like yeah, yeah. It, it was definitely there, but it was subtle enough that it didn't really hit me until like the end of the second viewing, possibly into the third viewing. And then I was sitting here going, oh, why did they have to do that? It was a good movie. <laughs> they didn't have to do that. But it is in there. So that was probably my biggest issue with the movie, other than the fact that because it's a time travel movie, there's tons of plot holes and, <laughs> you know, things that if you think about too much, it makes your brain hurt because it does. You're like, what? No. As far as plot holes, this one has more holes than a tennis net. <laughs> True. But when you watch a good science fiction a good yeah, part yeah, of that. Yeah. You have to suspend your disbelief just so that you can enjoy the movie. And this one was well acted. So I appreciated the family scenes, especially at the beginning of the movie, mm -hmm. where you get a feeling for Dan Forrester's family life and, and you know, his hopes and dreams as a person. And they mm -hmm. communicate that so well at the beginning of the movie before they throw you into, well, I guess there is that very first scene in the movie that kind of throws you into the action before you get all of that. <laughs> But it it is, it you is in. yeah it it <laughs> yeah. drops you in literally. So anyway, I, that is kind of my synopsis of my feelings for the movie is that I enjoyed it. It was it was a good entertainment movie the first time I watched it. I appreciate the acting, but there was some agenda issues with the movie that kind of put my back up yeah. a little bit the more I watched it. Yeah, I, I'm with you on pretty much everything. A little less on the Greta Thunberg. Because as we've discussed before, I actually uh, believe that climate change is a thing and that man contributes to it, but I'm not out chaining myself to trees or anything. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, trees, I think, are something we should be using more of because we can always plant more trees, people. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. The family scenes in particular, for me, not only did I enjoy the family scenes, but I realized after my second viewing that they actually inform a subplot in the movie, which is the the issue of PTSD and its mm. effect on the family. Yeah, I can see that. And you would be more sensitive to that than I am. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate how they slipped it in, but they didn't make it. It was much more subtle. It was subtle like the, the climate change dig. But it was important because it, it plays into the redemption arc at the mm -hmm. end of the movie. Right. And honestly, <laughs> I had fun with Tomorrow War. I enjoyed the movie the first time I watched it. And I watched it actually before Black Widow and before you and I had even talked about the possibility of doing it this month. But the more I thought about it, like you, the more it bugged me. But it wasn't because of politics it was because of logic mm. military logic specifically i'll talk <laughs> more about that as as we get into the themes but this really was a big budget movie you know we we've seen a bunch of movies come out over the course of the pandemic where they say well they made it for the big screen but they released it to the streaming services because nobody's going to theaters and mm -hmm. some of them have been good. Some of them have been actual big screen movies like Black Widow. And Tomorrow War is actually one of those ones where it was a big screen, a big budget movie. Right. And for me, the acting really made the movie. Chris Pratt is one of those actors that I'll watch in pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. 
J.K. Simmons, one of my all-time favorite actors, he does such a impressive range of personalities, and he brings an intensity to his characters that uh, I really, really find meaty, and I really like it. Uh, meat and potatoes type of intense intensity. And actually, Sam Richardson plays Charlie, and Yvonne Stravowski plays Colonel Forrester. And they both do a, a, a really good job acting, not Oscar quality, but much better than your average secondary characters. Mm-hmm. This brought good CGI, good writing from a message standpoint. But maybe not, not so much, so from, much the from the logic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that actually got me started thinking. Tomorrow War is a a good movie that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So I choose not to scrutinize it. But is that okay? Is that (laughs) really a good thing to do? I mean, we talk about suspending disbelief. We do a lot of superhero movies and sci-fi movies. We've never really done a true fantasy movie, have we? Uh, we Not you and I, at least. Yeah, I don't remember. (laughs) There's been so many movies. (laughs) And, you know, there's a certain amount of suspension of disbelief. The producers and the creative team behind this movie, do they get the, the script to a certain point and they go, well, it's got these huge holes in it that you can fly a 747 through. But we've got Chris Pratt attached to him. We've got J.K. Simmons. Let's get it to screen and, you know, hope that people will just overlook that stuff. And honestly, for me, it worked. Well, you know – I guess my feeling on that is fiction always has holes. It would be impossible, especially when you're dealing with kind of science fiction and fantasy. It's almost impossible to create a non-hold world Mm -hmm. in which to build your story in. There's always going to be holes, and especially when you're dealing with time travel. Oh, yeah. Christopher Nolan. (laughs) Yeah. It just creates so much issue with how science actually works that there's just no way. I mean, even when we did our review on Castaway, we were talking about how even though this movie was built to be very scientific feeling, it still had massive holes in it. And that's just, yeah, you know, the, the way fiction works. It's like you just have to admit this is not true, and so it doesn't work that way. And we're here to enjoy the characters, enjoy the story. Yeah. And is it okay for us to suspend our disbelief? I think it is to the point that we're enjoying the story. I don't think it's okay if we are ignoring the propaganda and the agendas of the story in order to enjoy mm. the story. There yeah, is a subtle difference there. Yeah. Yeah. So – yeah, it gets my vote. It, this is a, a really good popcorn movie. It does have some bad language in it. I will warn warn our viewers oh. of that. If you haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, there were like 23 S words in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did follow the PG-13 paradigm for, yeah. for language. One F-bomb and as many S words as they want. Yep. And there is drinking. I was trying to think of what other... There really isn't any sexual stuff in there, but they're too busy trying to save the world. But there is drinking, there is violence, and a lot of people die in kind of horrific ways, but somewhat (laughs) bloodless. And so I would say, you know, they worked really hard down that fine line to keep it from, I think, crossing over into R, but there are some objectionable content in the movie. Yeah, yeah. 
We won't dwell too much on that because we want to dive into our very lengthy list of things. So the entire plot of Tomorrow War, or let's say subplot, seems to hinge around the idea of the future paying for the sins of previous generations. So I started thinking of Tomorrow War as uh, having a subtitle of Sins of the Father. <laughs> yeah, that's where the Greta Thunberg frown comes in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At this point, we can't really discuss in detail anything without giving away the plot of the movie. And there are a couple twists in there that we don't want to ruin. So if you have not yet seen the movie... And Please you're planning. take a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and you're planning on watching it, and you care about having it spoiled. Please pause, watch the movie, and come back after you've seen it. It really is worth the watch. It really yeah. is. Yeah. So, welcome back. I appreciate everybody who did that. And let's talk about the sins of the father. <laughs> so, the first one that I wanted to talk about was I want to talk about the sin of sloth. And we're not going to do all seven deadly sins here. <laughs> I just like sloth because it was a litter of sin. And this actually, for me, it goes back to the whole military storyline of Tomorrow War, which is just so difficult for me. <laughs> the logic problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if it's a logic problem with the writing, or a logic problem with the future. <laughs> I don't know if it's just something that they didn't fix in writing or they intentionally left in to show that the future is populated by a bunch of people who can't do basic math. But they throw out some gigantic numbers when they talk about the future. Right. And one of those numbers is that at the time that they start recruiting People from the past. Oh, you know what? For those who haven't watched it and don't really have any desire to go watch it, let's lay out the very basic of, of the story for them. Dan Forrester is a high school science teacher who actually has a master's in a science field that he got after he served a couple tours of duty in, I think he was special forces. And he and his family are at a Christmas party and they're watching the World Cup and in the middle of the World Cup, a huge time rift opens up and about 30 soldiers from the future pop out of this time rift and they make this impassioned, if completely worthless uh, in reality, pitch for the past to send warriors to the future to help them fight a war that they're losing. And at the time when they send people back, there are only 500,000 people, estimated, left Back on Earth. Back to the future. Ha, ha, ha. Sorry. <laughs> so that means that 7.1 billion people – actually, it would be more like 9 billion people because you know we're talking 30 years in the future – have already been killed by this alien threat called the White Spikes. So – the rest of the movie is dealing with the past sending people to the future, of which Dan Forrester becomes one, and fighting the white spike menace in the future and coming up with a way to to fight them. And they finally come down to a uh, 
a solution where science is the answer through a bioweapon. Along the way, Dan Forrester, we learn about his completely destroyed relationship with his father. We learn about his struggles to be taken seriously as a scientist. While he's teaching science to high schoolers without any practical experience as a researcher. Yeah. And we get to see how that all ties in. And that was actually what I liked about the writing was uh, the way they laid the groundwork for the more emotional storylines. So back to the problem. 7.6 billion people on the planet today, roughly 3.8 billion of them would be qualified to jump to the future and fight. The qualification... Yeah, the qualification to jump is that they have to be dead before the future time period. Exactly. That's the only qualification. And they have a pulse. (laughs) Sorry, that was a joke in the movie. (laughs) If your band determines that you are still alive. After seven days, you get to come back. (laughs) Right. It's only a seven-day tour. (laughs) Okay. That's useful. So the problem is, is that. If these white spikes have already killed over 6 billion people, about 20% of whom would have had actual military training, (laughs) we're talking vets or active duty military around the globe, what are they expecting these unprepared, under-equipped civilians to be able to do? I mean, the military today, we've got advanced Stealth fighter jets. We've got tanks that can go 70 miles an hour. We've got armored vehicles that can drive on top of a landmine and have it explode under them and still drive away. We have incredible things, yet somehow they think that just throwing barely armed civilians with no combat training against an enemy like these white spikes is – supposed to do something that are practically invincible yeah and well we have to admit that the one jump we see is they are unprepared because they hadn't finished their training yes that is true because the the group was sent prematurely because there was an attack on the research lab in the future a week a week early almost uh, six days early i think right because they jumped right after the they didn't even know how to use their guns or whatever so yeah And, you know, there's a speech where they're saying everything you thought you know about basic training, we're not going to do. We're not going to do obstacle courses. We're not going to do push-ups. Then what? what? are you going to do? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How are you preparing to be hunted down and eaten by these giant, almost invincible aliens that can only be shot in one place to kill them and – yeah, what was it, abdomen or neck? They they weren't (laughs) even doing target practice to learn how to shoot them, so – I don't know if it was lazy writing or if it was the future had just gotten so desperate that they thought this was the only the only solution. And the horrible thing about this is that even if you look at it in the perspective of we were sending people into the future to preserve humanity, well, they end up preventing that war from ever happening. But those people that were sent forward were still dead. So yeah. we may have saved – the future's humanity, but we didn't save the billions of people that we killed by sending mm-hmm. them forward in time to fight a war that was not winnable. So, oh, you know, they're 
now that I think about it, they, there had to be at least one other qualification, and that that would have to have been that you were not going to have any other children. Right. That's true. The other thing that to add to your math problems is that when he is being conscripted, they make a comment that if he doesn't return, his dependents will receive a pretext payment of $1 million. Well, when you add that to the amount of people who were not returning, oh, where yeah. was that money coming from? No kidding. <laughs> the payout just for the people who had already not returned would have exceeded the global value. Yeah, it's crazy. So it really was lazy. It was either desperation on the part of the, the folks in the future or laziness on the uh, on the writers. But the more I thought about it, the more it got under my skin. Mm-hmm. And this, this is that part that I said, you know what? I'm just not going to think about it. But I wanted to, because, you know, we, we always try to tie it back to scripture. It did make me think of the question of, you know, Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons, they have fan bases. And the studio, I mean, when they make a movie this big, they may be saying that they have to answer to the audience is really the wrong way to put it. But the audience is going to be the final judge of how the movie's received, right? Right. So, you know, with this kind of glaring hole in the movie, I question whether or not they're being good stewards of the ex- expectations that they have. And it reminded me of the entire parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 28. But I'm not going to read all of that. But I wanted to jump ahead to the last servant who took the talent that he was given by the master before the master uh, took off on his trip. And uh, instead of doing anything with it, he just buried it so that he could return the talent to the master in total. And and when he laid this out to him and said, I knew you to be a hard man. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose this for you. So I, I secreted it away. So starting in 26, his master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So it really is a question of when the writing has this big a hole in it, are they being good stewards of the expectation that they have for the audience? I don't actually know if this was the case, but I wanted to mention it. Particularly because stewardship actually ties into our next theme. Right. Which is a theme that that you and I have talked about on a number (laughs) of different occasions. Before we move on, I I just decided to just quickly got under Rotten Tomatoes to kind of see what, you know, how this movie has been reviewing. And the critical review is a 52% and is counted as a splat. The audience score is 78%, which is actually pretty high. Hmm. So I think that that kind of shows the fact that people do like to be entertained and not think too much about yeah about movies. So the critical reviews or viewers are finding all of the faults in the movie while the audience is just enjoying the, you know, the action. 
Yeah, I I think I'm probably bugged more by climate change. And and I, you know, you were saying that, you know, you believe in climate change. It's like, I believe in climate change, too. That's not the issue. Yeah. It's never yeah, yeah. been the issue. The issue is whether or not climate change is worth the hysteria and the changing of economies and even the destruction of some economies in order to mm-hmm. fix. And that is where I disagree with the current you know, political nature of climate change, that we are somehow destroying our kids' futures. And that if we don't immediately do something to fix it, we are going to... We're doomed. We're doomed. (laughs) And, And that was kind of, you know, they had this entire scene in the movie where he's in his high school classroom trying to teach the kids science. And, you know, they're talking about that they don't have any hope. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're actually going to talk about that. We are going to talk about that in a minute. But this is the actual climate of climate change discussion in our world today is the oh, young yeah. people yeah. are coming out and telling us they have no hope for the future because we've destroyed the world. And, you know, it's all going to end in 10 years or 11 years or whatever the magic number is. And the thing that bugs me about that is, is that it, it is a scientific fact that the climate is changing. I am not right. in any way disputing that. But what we are not taking into account is in the at least in the evolutionary way of looking at things, which as many of you will know, I am a young earth creationist. I don't believe in a, a, a millions of years old earth. I believe the earth is only at most six, six to 8,000 years old. So when you put it in a time frame like that, Climates will change because we live in a very young Earth. But if you put it in the in the evolutionary time frame, which everybody else seems to accept, you know, the Earth is billions of years old, then mm-hmm. we do not we have not taken a big enough picture of oh, our yeah. climate. Our, our data set is way our, too small. Our data set is so minuscule that there is absolutely no way that we could ever determine whether a a couple degrees change in climate temperature is going to be this massive destructive thing. Because we know historically there has been an ice age, at least one. Yeah, multiple, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, at least one. So if we are willing to admit scientifically that there has been an ice age, and we actually have a documented mini ice age in the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. then how can we not admit that the Earth is warming? Yeah. And and so you you put you, it into you that make a really standpoint. Good point. Yeah. So yeah. you put it into that standpoint and then we have all of these children who have been convinced by media that they have no hope because <laughs> the the climate change is destroying their future. And then we have a movie like this that comes out and actually contradicts itself, but I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> They make it sound like that the whole reason why humanity is being destroyed in the future is because a glacier melts and lets these aliens out. That they were been here for centuries mm-hmm. and buried in a glacier, and because we didn't take care of our planet, the glacier melted and released them and killed all of humanity. So that's basically the the premise of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So the reason that I say it contradicts itself is because the whole concept of super volcanoes, which is the reason why there is Chinese ash in Russia, in a Russian glacier, is the whole underlying idea of catastrophism, which means that climates change in a catastrophic way, which is a biblical standpoint. 
of climate change. Oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> There's never been a global catastrophe that, you know, threatened almost the, the entirety of, of life on the planet. Mm, yeah, well. One so, or two. Yeah. So that was where it contradicted itself. But yeah, from a standpoint of being a young earth creationist, I like to look mm-hmm. at things biblically, which we know that the world is going to end. And so as Christians, we have been given dominion over the earth. That was the Genesis 1 mm-hmm. mandate. And that, as we have reiterated before in previous reviews, does not mean that we get to misuse the planet. That doesn't mean that right. we just uh, misuse and abuse it. That means we take care of it. It's stewardship. But we don't, at the same time, worship the planet. We don't put the planet up on a pedestal and we don't destroy people's lives in order to preserve the planet. This is, there is a balance there between people living good lives and, and balanced economies and giving people yeah. a means of heating their homes and cooling their homes or, you know, feeding their families where you balance that against our need to maintain the planet in a, in a proper way. And I think that they can be balanced and there's really no need for hysteria, that there is a, a good way to balance those things. Yeah. And I think that the- that is biblical. But at the same time, we know the end of the story. We know that eventually mm-hmm. the, the world will end in fire and there's not a thing we can do to stop that. What we can do is present people with a hope that is not physical that is not based in this physical world, but an eternal hope in God. And yeah. so that is why the climate change debate has always bothered me and why I really felt like this movie in itself embodies this whole idea of using science and man to solve a problem that science and man has created and mm-hmm. completely excluding God from that equation and where God is really the only hope. Yeah. I saw the way they presented young Murray as being bright eyed and bushy tailed and digging in the backyard to find vaccines. You know, (laughs) I saw that as underlying this recurring accusation from Hollywood that, you know, our generation, yours and mine and and our Mm -hmm. parents' generation, our grandparents' generations, that we are blind to these global problems that even children can see. Right. And we're blinded by our own greed and hubris, but that a 16-year-old from Norway is clear-sighted and free from these corrupting influences. (laughs) And the idea that these children will grow up to somehow avoid the corruption that we and our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and – uh, however, many generations before have somehow not been able to avoid because this generation is chosen <laughs> or special <laughs> or somehow uncorruptible, which is completely That's antithetical. As it's <laughs> yeah. as fictional as this movie is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what? Every generation thinks that. I mean, if you go back and look at the the oh yeah the sixties and the hippie era, <laughs> that was the whole point was you know free love, man. Yeah, these kids knew how to do it, and the, and the older people didn't. And now those kids have grown up and matured and know that how foolish and stupid they were back then. And now the <laughs> next generation thinks it's smarter than they are. So it's it's 
it is a generational thing that the kids always think they're smarter. But I think one of the things that has hurt the current young generation is that they really have not had to suffer they themselves. So they're they making don't understand up, they suffering. Don't, they have no clue what suffering is. Yeah. They have never wanted American for children, anything. Yes. At least. And European children to some extent. Yeah. First first world children. Yes. They're creating first world problems because they've never dealt with any third world problems. They've never had to truly suffer. And yeah. to be honest, I'm of the last generation. I have never. I mean, there's some been some major catastrophes that have happened in my lifetime, but they weren't to the extent. I mean, we've had no world wars. We've had no world famines. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had it really easy even in our generation, but then we bring yeah. up these kids behind us who really have no clue. They're making up problems because they have to have something to protest because that's what the young people do. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just look at 9-11. Look at how right. the United States reacted to 9-11. 9-11, don't get me wrong, was a linchpin in American history. And it was a tragedy of significant proportions. But in the end, something like only 5,000 people died. Now, compare that to the number of Christians who have been killed in Ethiopia over the past year. Yeah. Just for being Christians. Not for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because of what they believe. Mm -hmm. That's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands yeah. Of Christians who have been hacked to death after being raped. Yeah. And I mean, that's the kind of suffering that we are not seeing. Right. So yes. it's, I mean, people like Greta Thunberg, they really, hysteria, you used the word hysteria earlier, and that really is the right word. Mm -hmm. Hysteria is. You know, this urge to seek change without any real direction. <laughs> well, and you just spoke earlier about, you know, this concept of the future coming back and in just throwing people at a problem without any real thought as to whether, you know, there's no logic behind it. And I really feel like that translates to our the climate change debate today. It's like, we're not really logically thinking about the problem. We're just throwing science at it. Right. You know, it's like the whole idea that everybody wants to blame the US. The US has cut its carbon emissions and its and its pollution to so much that we're like way down the list now of global polluters. But yet everybody's still pointing the finger at the US because we're the ones that have the money to spend on the problem. But China and India are some of the worst polluters and nobody ever points any fingers at them. Right. And so I'm sitting here going, so why do you keep expecting the U.S. to solve the problem? We're not the problem. And we've already taken steps to fix the problem. And we're already doing what whatever we can. And, you know, we're already doing it. So to me, the hysteria is the massive blind spot in our culture and in our world economy. And to be honest, it is really a matter of, of governmental control. The climate change debate has turned into very much like the pandemic has. It's a real problem that is being used in a political way to wrong ends. And sadly, that is what has happened. And, and it will yeah. cost people's lives because whenever 
the solutions to real problems become political, it costs lives. It always does. But, you know, we live in a fallen world. I, I want to wrap this back into our discussion. Mm -hmm. And these are the symptoms of a world without God trying to solve problems that can only be solved through God. And yeah. To me, the climate change sins, you, you were talking about, you know, the seven dead, the seven deadly sins, you know, the first one was sloth. But this one, I think, is really more of idol worship, because we are yeah. literally put science and the planet on a pedestal and and are worshiping them instead of God. Right. And that's not to say that science is not worthy of study. Science is or a that tool the that planet God gave us. is not worthy of, yeah. <laughs> you know, taking care of. As a matter right. of fact, like you said earlier, we are tasked <laughs> with right. taking care of the planet by God, right. and we do that through the reason that He put in us through, you know, making us in His own image. Right. So, as long as you don't worship science and the planet, <laughs> yeah, the environment over God. Mm -hmm. More power to you. There are a lot of Christians who are scientists out there who are working to make the world a much better place. And I have the utmost respect for them. Yeah. But it really does come down to idolatry and what you're going to worship. Right. That turned into a bigger discussion than we meant it to be. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> the storyline that I liked the most out of the Tomorrow War. Uh, and it involves a redemption arc, which I I know I've said before, I love a good redemption arc. Mm -hmm. they, they really, it always just hits me in the feels, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think the Tomorrow War did a particularly good job with this one because it starts off with us learning about how Dan hates his father. Because mm -hmm. he was abandoned by his father. It was it was more yeah. hurt than hate, I think. But yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, hate's probably the wrong word. He was abandoned by his father after his father got back from Vietnam, and there are a number of scenes in the movie, and not not sequential, not all in the same order, but there are a number of scenes and quotes in the movie where you can lay out how this all happened, and it it generates a not only a sufficient picture to understand what happens. It generates a, a picture that is general enough that you can see it happening to people you've known. Right. This is really, I think, the story of the Vietnam generation, because this is our generation, to be honest. This is, yeah. you know, my dad was a Vietnam vet. I was born right after the Vietnam War. Uh, I was kind of like the consolation after my dad returned from the war. <laughs> But welcome back. Here's a kid. Yeah. So yeah, this is something that we can most of my generation anyway, can put ourselves into the story. Yeah. And I agree with you that, it, it, you know, it's kind of like an every man backstory to put in here, because so many of us have dealt with, you know, fathers who have returned broken by war. Mm -hmm. And the Vietnam War was one of the worst, because not only were they broken by the war, but they were return to an ungrateful population, the hippie era that we were talking about, you know, that they just, they blamed the soldiers who were conscripted and had no choice but to fight the war. They blamed them for a war that they had no choice in. And yeah. 
And so they, they were not supported when they came home. And I think that the, the biggest thing for veterans is to have that support when they return. And if they don't get it, you know, then they have to bottle it up and do something else with the issues that war creates mm-hmm. in them. You know, I look at how people who came back from Afghanistan struggled with the issues that they had to wrap their head around, like my nephew. And I realized that the difference is, is that the soldiers who came back from Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder had an imperfect support structure, but a support structure. Whereas the soldiers who came back from Vietnam, not only did they not have a support structure, but they came back to people spitting on them and jeering them at Mm -hmm. the airport. Mm-hmm. They came back to being refused service at local businesses. I know my dad said that he got rid of all of his uniforms. The first thing he did was destroy every aspect of military life and so that it, nobody could even look at him and know that he had served yeah. in the military. I mean, I still have my uniforms from 1992 <laughs> up yeah. in my closet. Mm-hmm. I weigh a good 150 pounds more now than I did then. I could <laughs> never wear I couldn't those even again. Come close to putting it on. <laughs> but you know, every time we move or we uh, we clean house, it's like, are we going to get rid of these finally? No. <laughs> I got space in my closet. I'm leaving it there, and I have a great deal of pride in my time. Your military service, yeah, in the service, right, and. You know, that was taken from the Vietnam vets. And the fact that this storyline is played out between J.K. Simmons and Chris Pratt just makes it that much better in my mind. Because these (laughs) two really pull the emotion out. Ultra high caliber actors. Yeah. Yeah. J.K. Simmons plays intensity so well. He just does such a good job as the Vietnam vet who's come to terms with the how he was changed by his Vietnam and post-Vietnam experience. I think it's interesting that they present him as being very anti-government. And, yeah. you know, you can't blame them for being anti-government. And Yeah, the, the government just abandoned them, too. Yeah. He's anti-government the same way that Dan is anti-dad. <laughs> yeah. So they play out the relationship, and, and they're – portion is really only the beginning and the end of the movie. The entire middle of the movie is the whole time jump sequence, and James doesn't have anything to do with any of that. The thing that is so interesting about this James and Dan situation is that you know the whole idea of the sins of the fathers is what you are raised in is what you then repeat. And so in this movie, we have the beginning framework of James and Dan and their really messed up relationship. And then when Dan jumps into the future, he meets his adult daughter, who he has a wonderful relationship with as a five-year-old. But he finds out that he basically abandons her. And and she grew up not knowing him because he gets separated and, and basically mm-hmm. loses his, his way in career-wise and family-wise and whatever, which gives him the opportunity then to maybe understand his dad a little bit more so that when he jumps back, he's then able to actually approach his dad and give his dad a second chance to help 
him, you know, stop this war in the future to help to save his relationship with his daughter. So it's kind of like this dominoing effect. And I think that is probably the most beautiful thing about this movie is that whole concept of second chances of Dan being able to find out what's going to happen to him in the future and change his behavior so that he is adamant that he is not going to lose his daughter. He's not going to go down that route. And which, you know, kind of some of the movies we've dealt with said that you can't change the future, that it's written in stone. In this movie, they obviously take the tact that you can make a change that will change the future. Because who knows? They they stated without any shadow of doubt that he was going to die in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. And so that was why he got sent in the future. But if he changes his future, then that may right. not happen. Well, the entire solution that Colonel Murray Forrester comes up with is predicated on the idea that you that, can change the future. That you yeah. can change the future. Right. Which also goes back to the idea that they sent all of these people to their deaths for a fight that they would never have to do. Right. Twisted thinking, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is really cool that, you know, that we see this redemption arc, like you said, that that's kind of the whole the whole purpose of this movie was this redemption arc. I mean, the fact that they put so much time in the beginning talking about his relationship with his wife, his relationship with his daughter and his relationship with his father. And I like the fact that they frame that where the movie doesn't end when they kill the aliens in the present so that they don't create the future war. The story ends with him bringing his dad home to meet his daughter. That's where the story ends, because that's where the actual arc of the story is, is, you know, this this tale of second chances and, you know, learning to forgive the wrongs that we do each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. And like I said, it goes back to uh, I love a good redemption arc. And because of the way my family has turned out, it always impacts me a little more than normal when it's a story about estranged family members. Mm-hmm. So I always want, I always want to try and fix it. And I very rarely make it any better. Uh, usually it's the other way around. And maybe all we can do as family is just be willing to forgive and give that second chance or third chance or fourth chance. I mean, you know, the, the apostles asked Jesus, how many times do we forgive someone who's wronged us? And he said, 70 times seven. Mm-hmm. That literally means we never stop forgiving when other people wrong us. And so when we're hurt by a family member, it's so easy to shut them out and not give them another chance to hurt you because that pain is so much more than a stranger's pain. You know, when a stranger hurts you, that pain doesn't even come oh, close yeah. to the pain that when a family member hurts you. So it is not an easy thing when God tells us that we are supposed to forgive. But that is where Mm -hmm. that redemption happens in our own families is we can't control what others do, but we can control our own heart. And we hurt ourselves more by not forgiving. Yeah. Real quick, before we jump into the next theme, I wanted to go back to the overall theme of sins of the father and, and throw some scripture in. The reason being is that the idea of sins of the father is something that in scripture, it seems to be contradictory. It's not. But, you know, there's places where it says one thing, there's places where it says another. Let's start with Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy is where the law is first laid down. Mm -hmm. The Israelites have been rescued from Egypt, 
And God is speaking through Moses to lay down the law that the Hebrew nation of Israel is going to live through. And and you would put the first one in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I stuck that in there because, you know, that's the one that, you know, God is jealous and he's hurting Mm -hmm. people to third and fourth generation. But when you put it in the context of sin, that's it's sin. It is literally sin that is the wrath of God upon us from generation to generation. We're all born sinners. And so when we accept that we are sinners and turn to God for salvation, then we become the thousands of those who love him and keep in his commandments. And we we escape that sin cycle. And that's the sins of the father. That's what it is. It's a sin cycle that is not God's wrath on us. It's simply our iniquity, our sin that has Mm -hmm. caused it. And it doesn't go away because we keep inflicting it upon ourselves. You know, the unbeliever will frequently point to stuff like, I, the Lord, your God, and am jealous, God, and will visit the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. They'll point to stuff like that as as an example of how God is an unjust concept. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like they do so often, they cherry pick. Right. (laughs) And they ignore so many other parts. Uh, For instance, Deuteronomy 24, 16, which is just a little later in the book. Fathers are not to be put to death for their children, and children are not to be put to death for their fathers. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. That's an instruction to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then a little later in Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4, Ezekiel is saying that the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The son who sins is the one who will die. And this is actually addressed in John 9, 1 through 3, where, well, it says, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. So even our suffering is a vehicle for God's glory to be displayed. We are responsible for our own sins in as much as we're condemned by them. But Jesus dying on the cross paid the price for those that believe in him. Yeah. And that glory, that that miracle of his saving me is so much greater than just making a blind man see. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he rose me from the dead. So the sins of the father are not something that should be used as an argument against Christianity but they should point to the salvation of Christ and that Christ 
and dying on the cross paid for my sins and the sins of the people who came before me who accept him. Right. And that I belong to God and that you belong to God. And even the unbeliever belongs to God, even if they refuse to acknowledge it. Yeah. And I think that that kind of wraps into, you know, the, what we were talking earlier, the global warming and the, you know, the generation who has no hope in the future. And, you know, the whole point of having hope is having hope in something that will save you. And because even when we're obsessing over first world problems, we're seeking salvation in some way from those problems. You know, like these kids, you know, that are in these high school is like, they're obsessing over the fact that in 30 years, all of humanity is going to be wiped out. That's 30 years from now. You can do a lot of living in 30 years. But yeah. they are so fixated on something that's going to happen in 30 years that seems like it's doom. And then to have, you know, somebody tell you, but we need scientists to, to fix this. You need to innovate. That is the wrong motivation because <laughs> we already know that science – you know, in, in the case of this movie, science does win, but that's because it's a secular movie that's pointing, you know, p creating science right. as the god, uh, Deus Ex Machina, that is going to save the day. But in real life, the humanistic viewpoint that if we just science it enough, that that is somehow mm -hmm. going to solve all the <laughs> world's problems and we won't, we'll have no more famine. You know, they're always looking for that utopia, that right. perfect world in which humanity can live together and everybody's equal and everybody makes the same amount of money and everybody lives in equal happiness and there are no injustices and there's enough food to go around. And, you know, it's just this utopia that secular humanism strives for. And as Christians, we should always know that that utopia only exists in eternity with God. And yeah. so we don't strive after these humanistic ideals because we know they're false gods that you're striving after. They're false gods. They're unattainable. And it doesn't mean that, like you said earlier, that we don't take care of the planet, that we don't care for our fellow man. They're not excuses not to do those things. It's just they are a difference in motivation and a difference in purpose. And as Christians, we should always remember that God is our hope. And I wanted to point specifically to a couple scriptures here. First is First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, that in New Testament vernacular, that means people who have passed away, they're actually dead, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we don't have that same lack of hope when we see people dying, because we know if we're saved, that we have an eternity with him. So that is our hope. That is, we don't get lost in death. We don't get depressed by death, or at least we shouldn't be depressed by death. Well, yeah, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve, yeah. But like everything else, that grieving should end with pointing to God. Right. And then in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 21, it says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant 
or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Timothy Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. I think Mm. this passage in Timothy is probably one of the best things we could be telling the youth of today, because these are the very things that they're stumbling over. They get arrogant because of wealth. They covet wealth. They covet things that other people have. And and instead of being generous, they are covetous and greedy. And then they trust the irreverent and empty speech and contradictions of our false knowledge of today's world. Mm -hmm. And they let that destroy their faith. That's what happens when so many of our young people leave their Christian homes and go away to a secular university and come home as as good little pagan humanists. That's exactly Mm. what happens. It's because they are being steeped in irreverent and empty speech and contradictions falsely called knowledge. Yep. And that is causing them to depart from the faith. And I think it's amazing that Paul was talking to a young man when he wrote that. (laughs) Yeah, that is the best advice we could be giving our children in the face of the lack of hope that they have in our future. That's what they are all worried about is their future. And granted, when you're young, and you've got your whole life ahead of you, that's the only thing you really have to worry about is your future. But we have to be better as Christians and addressing not only the best future they can have in Christ, but combating the false ideas that are in the world that are leading them astray. And that's something I feel very strongly about. Yeah. And, you know, the the kids in the, in this particular scene where we're, you know, it's in the high school and, and Dan is trying to teach them, that specific one where they're like, what's the point? That reminded me of Isaiah 40, 30 through 31, Youths may become faint and weary, and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. And that ties into 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 21, Mm -hmm. because both of them say, look, here's the stumbling blocks. Here's your, your stumbling youth, your young men who are falling down. They grab on to God. If they grab onto what is truly life, then they'll make it. Just so many people don't see it. I'm privileged to have gone back to school to a wonderful uh, university, Regent University, that teaches sound biblical theology. And I don't have to worry about having to struggle with resisting indoctrination (laughs) in my classes. The struggle is real. Oh, yeah. The struggle is very real in our young people's lives. And I have seen so many, I used to work in the high school department in our church, you know, the youth department. I have seen so many of these young kids, these girls that seem to really have their head screwed on straight. They knew God, they knew their scripture, they'd been taught all of that. And then they go to university and within two years, they have been turned into liberal socialists. 
And mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and be a liberal socialist, but I say there's some massive contradictions in it's motivation. Tough to do. <laughs> it's very tough. Yeah. It it is a revisioning of what Christ and the Bible stand for to try and shove liberal socialism into it. And I've seen them try to justify it, that you know, to put their faith in there and and try to justify that view of the world. But it is contrary to many of the things that are taught to us in scripture. And yeah. and that is sad that they go away and they completely switch because of, I don't know. I don't know why they switch. I don't understand it because I went to liberal arts college in, you know, 20, 25 years ago and I held my own, but I know that a lot of my classmates didn't and it's probably gotten worse. So yeah. If I am a parent with a child going to college, I would not send them to college. And I think that this comes down to, in First Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that is the ultimate thing, is that we have to, as Christians, be willing to defend the reason why we have hope in Christ. It isn't just a matter of the touchy-feely stuff. We have to be willing to speak about it openly as a witness to the hope that we have in Christ. We have to be willing to reason it out. So give people real reasons why they can have that hope and not just do the touchy-feely stuff. Yeah. I do want to move on because we're running long. Yeah, we're running long as always. And then there's a few more things I want to talk about. One thing that really struck me, I think it was on the third viewing of this movie, there's a couple places in the movie where future Miri tells her father that she wants him to take the serum back to his time to stop the war from ever happening. And she specifically says that if you look, listen to what she says, she is saying prevent this war, not come back and win this war. She's saying prevent mm-hmm. this war. And so her... The whole idea is that she's going to come up with what kills the aliens, send it back with him, and he's going to stop the war from happening. He's going to go find the aliens when they land and kill them then before the war ever rehappens. Yep. Yep. He never hears her that way. And it's quite obvious that he never hears her that way because he keeps saying, I'm going to take it back and then I'm going to come back and help you. I'm going to take it back and then I'm going to, I'm not going to abandon you to this. And when he jumps back and the, he he literally sees her dying as he is jumped back to the past and he is depressed because then he hears that the time jump goes down and he can't take the serum forward. So he loses all motivation to do anything because he forgot. He literally forgot that she told him you're to prevent this war from happening and I was thinking about that, and I was like, that is exactly what happened to the disciples with Christ. He was telling them mm-hmm. over and over and over again, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. This is the future that I am bringing in for Christianity. And all they were hearing was, Christ is the Messiah. He's going to issue in the new kingdom. They completely were not hearing him say that he had to die and resurrect to make that happen. And... And he was telling them point blank. He actually said it. I'm going to die. (laughs) I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer. And they just didn't hear it. And so I just was thinking from a standpoint is how often do we as Christians 
listen to what God tells us, even in scripture, you know, just read a verse and it's telling us something that is just smackingly obvious, like it's hitting us in the face and we're hearing but not listening. And so we put our own spin on that and make it say what we want God to be saying to us. And we need to be careful as Christians to not do that. That's all I can say. It's just like, that's exactly what the disciples did to Christ. And I'm sure that we constantly do it to God now. And we're reading our Bibles. We put our own spin on what he's trying to tell us. And we don't hear what he's saying. I think that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, because I don't think the Holy Spirit can let us get away with that very often. If we're not suppressing Mm -hmm. the Spirit, he's going to be nagging at us that, no, that's not the spin you're supposed to be putting on that verse. (laughs) Now, I dealt with that quickly, because before we closed up, I did want to let our listeners know that we do tend... We didn't do it with Black Widow, but we mostly usually post in our Facebook group when we are about to record on something to give you the chance or the opportunity to give us feedback on the film before we record. And in this instance, I actually got some pretty decent feedback from our listeners. Peter Townsend wrote in and he said that he thought it was a very reasonable film. There are a few unanswered questions by the end of it and several paradoxes, which I'm sure we've already hyped on a few times. Yeah. But that always happens in that type of film. A few questions that come to mind. Is it just to enter war and attack people who haven't attacked you yet? And to that one, I responded, well, they were eating people. You know, these were aliens Mm -hmm. that were literally eating people. And he replied back, I would argue that the White Spikes only attacked first in the future. The people drafted in the army from the present hadn't been attacked. Also, the film ended with a going back in time and killing baby Hitler idea. And after he brought that up, I was like... Hmm, that's kind of an interesting take on that. I never even thought about it. But then I also don't think of these aliens as being people. So that might have been where right. they were really right. presented as as appetites. Wild animals. Yeah, like wild yeah. animals with voracious appetites. So I didn't really see it as unjust in killing them because that was all they were. But you can put a twist on that because we do have a tendency as humans and science fiction sometimes puts that twist on us to make us think that we tend to dehumanize our enemies. So we put, you know, like the Nazis that, you know, since he brought Mm -hmm. up Hitler, we tend to dehumanize them. They were evil people that killed millions. And so therefore anything is justified to stop that from happening. And so we do have to be careful. I did not view the white strikes as people. So I didn't quite get take away that from the movie, but I can see why Mm -hmm. Peter Townsend did, because that is definitely something You know, white spikes are a fictional enemy. What if it had been a tribe of people in the future that started wiping out everybody else? They were people. How do we prevent them from from killing without killing them? So then it becomes a matter of ethics is does it make sense to kill them before they have had a chance to kill you in such a bizarre way of looking at it? Which is interestingly goes to the plot of the books of Ender's Game. Mm-hmm. Right. The entire Formic War from the Ender's Game series. Right, yeah. Because Ender actually was able to discover that the buggers were, at least the queens, were a thinking, sentient creature right. that deserved to be communicated with and asked to stop. But we wiped them out instead. 
And then his second point was: Are the white strikes actually supposed to be the good guys? If the human population is too large and we are destroying the planet, perhaps the invasion is nature's way of rebalancing and providing time for the planet to recover. Perhaps the foresters made everything worse by keeping humanity alive. And he put in parentheses: This is not my view, but I can imagine people actually arguing for this, which was my whole climate <laughs> change debate earlier on in our yeah. discussion. It was no accident that they were named deforesters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or that white spikes is in their name, white, you know, typically we think of. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. Now, David Lefton also saw the movie and he said he thought it was okay. Some original ideas, but mostly rehashing of a lot of movies and books, Ender's Game, War of the Worlds, The Terminator. I was hoping for more future tech like AI powered drones and w- weapons, which are already here. In- <laughs> yeah. I mean, 30 years in the future, imagine how much we would advance. So I can see where he, he came with that. Theologically, oh, yeah. maybe relates to fate, destiny versus free will again, but been down that rabbit hole before. Spoiler below, there is sacrifice, the child made to save the world. So some semblance of Christ, but the father did not willingly give the child up. So mm-hmm. he kind of pulled in a little bit of Christ imagery there, which is pretty cool. So I love it that our listeners are thinking critically like that about yeah. these movies. I thank mean, you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And we hope to continue the discussion in our group, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community, which will take you directly to our Facebook group. And I won't give away any spoilers, but Tim and I are thinking about creating another community outside of Facebook and We'll give you more details about that. Stay tuned because we are real excited about it. And hopefully we'll have something else to present at our next episode, maybe. Just got to make sure we can make it work. Yeah, we don't want to promise anything if we can't make it work. But we are working on something outside of Facebook. So we're hoping to have that available soon. You can comment in the show notes at areyoujustwatching.com slash 119. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail. Or you can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And you can send us audio files if you would like to share your thoughts and have them on the show. Rather than having me read them, (laughs) you are more than welcome to do so. (laughs) Are You Just Watching is listener supported. And we want to give special thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Trappen for their generous monthly support. You can support us monthly by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching? Or you can go to paypal.com slash paypalme slash AYJW. And I believe that's it. Just so you know, we have decided on a whole list of movies, which if they come out as planned, which is not a guarantee right now, (laughs) if the movies come out as planned through the fall into winter, we already have most of the year planned out for what we're going to do for each month's episode, but I do believe we are open in September. So if you have any suggestions, feel free to go to our Facebook group and suggest them or any of the other means of communication. (laughs) Yep. I think that's it. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Mark. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, 
evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.